namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namassa Since most of us here at the moment or this evening uh, have uh, been on retreat for the last week or so, I wouldn't, most people wouldn't be aware of the tragic situation in, in Paris this week of the uh, attack on people there and, and then the huge gathering uh, on the streets of Paris uh, today of over a million people, including apparently something like 40 or so heads of state who have uh, gathered there in what's being characterized as a, a march for unity or unity against extremism and a uh, collective statement of resolve to not be swayed from the virtuous aspirations of, of most decent human beings and the insane activity of the gunman earlier in the week that caused so much suffering for so many people and so much fear uh, being met with this uh, statement of uh, an affirmation, a reaffirmation of of the wholesome values that we share. And amongst the uh, commentary that I read on this, uh, there's been an understandable amount of concern about what happens after the march. And you get a large group of people coming together and different nationalities, different religions, different ethnic groups, and, and uh, a very loud statement of a shared commitment to something wholesome. But then when you're not in that collective experience, feeling supported, what's going to happen? And so the commentators have been expressing concern about the, uh, the risk of old uh, prejudices and reprisals uh, appearing and already there are unfortunately signs of this taking place and so it seems you know, suitable seems like a, a skillful thing to do to spend some time considering what what are prejudices now we're obviously we're all human beings we all you know, go to sleep at night and like to have a good sleep and wake up in the morning and like to have a nice breakfast and spend our days in rewarding ways. That's, we're all like that. We're all, all human beings uh, trying to live in a rewarding way. And so what is it that means that even in an affluent 
uh, agreeable country like France or that human beings don't live together. So they, the wholesome aspirations are obvious. You know, they, how they were there before the attacks this week and before this march for unity. The wholesome aspirations were there and, and yet it would seem that they're not enough. It needs more than wholesome aspirations. And certainly in the Buddha's teachings, this is alluded to with uh, what the Buddha referred to as upaya or skillful means. You know, we, can, we can have good intentions, we can have very good intentions, we can have very noble aspirations uh, and yet we need more than that we need to ground those aspirations in our daily life practice and so that's why we have formal practice and daily life practice if we're just into formal practice and we're busy getting so seriously blissful that we don't know what's going on around us or we can't be bothered turning up to do the dishes when it's our turn well, that's not it. That's not balanced. And as my dear friend, the late Venerable Miyokioni, used to say, it's like having the two legs. You go forward on one leg, you go forward on the other leg. Daily life practice and formal practice. And if you just keep going forward on one leg, you tend to fall flat on your face. And so it is when you come out of balance with our know, daily life practice and formal practice. Like that, uh, that Anagarika we used to have here, who talked about his uh, his grandfather was a very devout Christian and uh, intensely virtuous human being, always studying the Bible and and saying his prayers. But he wouldn't go out and get a job and bring home money to feed the kids. And so his wife used to tell him that he was so heavenly minded he was no earthly good, and that that is. Uh, a risk, of course, for those of a spiritual inclination that we can go out of balance and dismiss all worldly concerns and all material involvement and think that the solution to everything is just by getting more inner. Well, we do need to get somewhat inner. We need to understand. We don't just need to understand our motivation. We need to understand where we're coming from. These, these deranged individuals that caused so much havoc in Paris this week, we need to understand where were they coming from? Where were their hearts at? They were prejudiced. Because somebody they perceived insulted the leader of their religion, they felt they had a right to go out and kill. Or because somebody else of a different religion offended them, they felt they had a right to go out and kill. That was in their hearts, that was in their minds. And So as I think uh, the, uh, the talk I gave on New Year's Eve, quoting the verse number two from the Dhammapada, all states of being are determined by the heart. It is the heart that leads the way. As surely as our shadow never leaves us, so well-being will follow when we speak or act with a pure heart. Yeah. And similarly, verse number one. Yeah. 
All states of being are determined by the heart. It is the heart that leads the way. Just as the wheel of the ox cart follows the hoof print of the animal that draws it, so suffering will surely follow if we speak and act with an impure heart. So this is, I would uh, say, is, is obviously tremendously important if we're trying to understand why do people do this? Yes, we need to look at the political environment and the economic environment and the unfair distribution of, of uh, wealth in society. These things matter. But even if all of these things are tidied up better than they are now, if the heart is still distorted, disfigured with the pollutions of prejudice, then it's not going to work. We're not going to live in harmony. So what is prejudice? And when I look at my mind and I, for instance, I think of um, when the All Blacks play France in rugby, I always want the French to lose. Now... Is that really immoral of me? Somehow I'm not convinced that I'm ever going to want the French, who play beautiful rugby, by the way. They're not, they don't play dirty rugby. Some countries do, but not the French. They, they play beautiful rugby, and they're good. But I always want them to lose. I want the All Blacks to win. Yeah. Does it matter if we have preferences? Well, there's a difference between preferences and prejudice. If my preference for the All Blacks to win in rugby over the French means that I then treat French people disrespectfully, then it's crossing a boundary, it's going too far. What is the difference? Well, this is where the inner work is very important. The relationship we have to that perception is something that can lead to suffering or it can be just so. That perception, that movement in the mind can be just that. If we're not lost in that, if we're not lost in that perception, We're not lost in that idea. We're not lost in that movement of I'm a Kiwi bloke and I want the All Blacks to win. If it's there, it doesn't have to be a problem. That's where sport is decent. When we get lost in it and we become disrespectful and we find our only identity is in that perception, we don't see that there's space around that perception. We don't see that there's a context to that content the perception of I'm a Kiwi bloke and they're playing these French people in rugby, that is a movement, an activity. There's a context to that. If we don't have a sense of that context, if we don't have an appreciation for the stillness that's there prior, during and after the activity of the perception of I'm a Kiwi bloke and these people are playing the French. 
If we don't have that, well, then there's a chance that we'll find all of our identity in the movement, in the content, in the activity. Yeah. Now, this is not something that we can appreciate by just thinking about it. Maybe thinking about it, it might make some sort of logical sense, but that's not going to really affect us. What's needed is to apply the upaya or the skillful means that the Buddha taught the in, to engage the, with the encouragement the Buddha gave us until we start to see for ourselves. Okay? That perception of I'm a Kiwi bloke is just that. What is it that sees that perception? Yeah. Or I'm a Buddhist. Yeah, one can become critical of some of the Muslims because of their behavior. One can become critical of some of the Jews because of their behavior. Uh, the Protestants and the Catholics. But you don't have to look very far before you also. It's very easy to be critical and rightly critical of a lot of the Buddhists in Sri Lanka and in Burma and, and other places because of their prejudiced behavior. Now, some of these Buddhist characters uh, feel justified in defending what they call their national pride. But they don't understand what the Buddha is talking about. If they feel that their true identity is defined by the perception, by that movement in their mind that calls them Sri Lankan Buddhists or Burmese Buddhists and then they feel threatened by the Muslims or anybody else. There are national identities. But these are conventional realities. They have their place. But if we seek our sense of security, if we seek our identity solely in these conditioned perceptions, then there is no real hope for contentment and peace and ease. At the best, there'll be a holding pattern, uh, a management strategy, which is better than nothing, certainly agreeing on living by the five precepts and containing our activity of body and speech to the degree that we don't act on harmful impulses. That's obviously very suitable, but that's not going to be the solution. So for meditators or for those who are seriously seeking the inner solution through the spiritual life, we need to question all of our prejudices. Investigate the difference between preference and prejudice. And be willing to question all of it. And in the process, I would suggest that we are kind enough and expanded enough in our awareness to be honest and let ourselves feel these prejudices. Sometimes it's humiliating and embarrassing to to admit that you feel prejudiced against uh, another group of people. But uh, we're only going to resolve our mistaken pursuit of security by clinging to these wrong views by being honest about it. And once we see it and we're honest about it, then we don't have to follow it. Yeah. Once we see it and we're honest about it, then we can expand beyond it, expand our awareness to accommodate it and then investigate it. If instead we see these conditioned perceptions and we get 
embarrassed and feel guilty and then try to overcome it, get rid of it, dismiss it, there's a chance that it'll just go further into unawareness and then leak out in unfortunate and more regrettable ways. So not jumping to the conclusion that just because we have a preference or an opinion about something, that it has to be a prejudice. The very perception of self, of me. An uninspected relationship to the Buddha's teachings. We, We hear what the Buddha said about anatta and all phenomena is not self, conditioned and unconditioned. And the encouragement is to not cling to any aspect of reality, conditioned or unconditioned. Uh, trying to make a self out of any conditioned or unconditioned aspect of reality is going to lead to disappointment. Now, if we have an uninspected appreciation on that teaching, we just cling to it and we make a, an opinion about it and we say there's no self. Well, the Buddha didn't say there's no self. He pointed to what's not self, an encouragement to investigate these conditioned selves that we have until we start to get a feeling for the game that we're up to, how we're looking for a safe sense of me in some formation, some idea, whether it's me as a Kiwi bloke, if it's me as a Buddhist, it's me as the abbot of a Theravadan Buddhist monastery, it's me as somebody who's a bit old, me as somebody who's healthy, me as somebody who's unhealthy, all these different me's there are. If we go gradually enough, skillfully enough, maybe we start to get a, a reading on the game that we're into which is trying to find security. And the Buddha gave us a lot of help in this territory, pointed out that none of it is secure. And and the pursuit of security and things that are inherently insecure is guaranteed to be disappointing. But he didn't make that into a dogma that we then have to just cling and believe in, but rather he equipped us with the skillful means of inner investigation daily life and formal practice, inquiry, until we start to see into and see beyond these tricks that we're up to. All of these seeking identity in any convention, any formation, any manifestation, any sensation of me is false, is mistaken. It's not bad, not wrong, it's just counterproductive. So the encouragement to go quietly into our investigations, not assuming too much, being interested in the suffering that comes from prejudice and allowing for the possibility that we are complicit in this. It's it's, uh, easy to get off on feeling superior. We Buddhists have been doing it for the last few decades and now our image is a little jaded and we're not so cool anymore. 
our spots and pimples and wrinkles and are all being shown and the media is focusing on on how Buddhists are not so wonderful after all. And, and it's true that Buddhists are not wonderful. The teachings of the Buddha are wonderful, but whether they take us to that which is truly beautiful or not, true a true relevant contribution to inner and outer harmony depends on how skillful we are in picking up these teachings. Even the Buddha's teaching on right view, if we cling to it, we spoil it, we make it wrong view. It just being a Buddhist doesn't make us better. There's that, um, what I found very helpful teaching on when this we contemplate the subject. I often refer to how Ajahn Chah got himself in a tangle over trying to come to terms with the, uh, the, the scriptural descriptions of conceit. And if you, you read the uh, commentarial analysis, it talks about the, the nine types of conceit that human beings fall into. Do you perceive yourself as better than other people when in fact you're better? You perceive yourself as better when in fact you're equal. You perceive yourself better when in fact you're worse. You perceive yourself as equal when in fact you're better. You perceive yourself as equal when in fact you are equal. You can see, perceive yourself as equal when in fact you're worse. You perceive yourself as worse when in fact you're better. You perceive yourself as worse when in fact you're equal. You perceive yourself as worse when in fact you are worse than other people. So that covers everything. And so Ajahn Shah was describing he got it, how he got himself into a, a tiz over this because as far as he was concerned, there was this perception in his mind that in many ways he was better than the other monks that he lived with. He could sew robes better, he could chant better, he could sit meditation better, he could walk meditation better. In many, many ways he was perceivably better and so he got himself into a real tangle over trying to come to terms with this perception he had which seemed true and what the books said which is all of this is conceit and then suddenly it clicked that it wasn't the conventional perception that was the problem it was the clinging to the perception it was making yourself out of the perception it was seeking security, trying to find identity and clinging to the perception of being better, equal or worse. Yeah. Now that's really, really helpful perspective to really take that in. It's not the perception itself. It's not wanting the All Blacks to beat the French in rugby. That's the problem. It's the clinging to the perception that I'm a Kiwi bloke and I want those French guys to lose. Getting lost in that creates suffering. So the predicament that the world finds itself in consistently over and over again, right now, sadly, in Paris, and what people have gone through there in the last week, uh, the way we address it as people feel drawn to the inner life, uh, it matters. Yes, making 
clear statements of our personal and shared aspirations for virtuous living, that reaffirmation has its place. But we need more than that. Like the Buddha's teachings on love, never through hatred is hatred conquered, but by love alone. Another verse from the Dhammapada, very well known. Never by hatred is hatred conquered, but by love alone. Now you have faith in the Buddha and the Buddha's teachings, you can hear that and, and so you can resolve to never hate anybody. But that resolution, that aspiration is in fact not enough. We need to take the other step, go forward on the other leg, ground that in daily life practice. When we feel dislike, when I don't get my way and somebody asks me to do the dishes when I just want to go and have a rest, how do I feel towards them? And what do I do with that? Do Am I willing... Am I willing to really expand awareness, take a deep breath in the body, create the space to feel what I feel in that moment? Or do I try to get past it, get over it? Because it's too embarrassing to admit how much I dislike this guy right now. Taking sides with disliking and taking sides with liking are just the same. They're following the movement of the mind. Liking and disliking a movement, a content. And there's a context to this. What is that context? This is something seriously worth contemplating. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.